Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 7. This week's episode is with Ranjan Chakravarti, who's Professor of Haematology and Cellular Immunotherapy at UCLH. He has a research area in graft-versus-host disease, graft-versus-leukaemia and T-cell immunotherapy. This week's episode is about acute graft-versus-host disease. Graft-versus-host disease is a major clinical problem and is caused by donor T-cells within the graft that recognises antigens found in the patient but not the donor. We talk about how to treat graft-versus-host disease and why the lungs, gut and liver are the most common places to see it. So thanks for coming on to speak to us. We did a podcast um, with Ben Carpenter, which was an introduction to allogeneic transplantation. So we kind of covered the basics of transplant, but what we'd like from you is uh, a bit more kind of detail into the complications or the side effects. Um, in particular, I know you're, you've done a lot of research into graft host disease, and that's kind of one of your areas of excellence, if, if you like. So. Can you just explain what the T cells are doing in this situation and why it comes about? Okay, so graft-versus-host disease is one of the most common complications after allogeneic stem cell transplantation. It doesn't occur after autologous stem cell transplantation, which gives you a clue as to the mechanism. It occurs because the donor and the patient are genetically distinct. And when a donor recipient is genetically distinct, the immune system of the donor can recognise differences between the patient and themselves, the original donor, and react to those changes. The most important type of immune cell that reacts is, the, is as you said, the, the T cell. And very shortly after the transfer of T cells with the graft, the T cells will react to those genetic differences. They'll begin to divide, and then they'll start to produce chemicals that go into the blood that can cause this sort of initial phase of graft-versus-host disease. And then they enter the tissues, classically the gut, the skin, and the liver. And at those sites, they start to release lots of chemicals. They also begin to attach themselves to particular cells within those tissues, which we call epithelial cells, and directly kill them. And the consequence of that is that patients can become quite unwell. So, for example, if they have graft-versus-host in the skin, you can observe a rash, which can be very mild, but untreated can be very severe and lead to blister formation, desquamation, so it can be very awful when it's uncontrolled. In the gut, patients can get diarrhea, abdominal pain. Again, if it's untreated, they can develop abdominal distension, an ileus. They can also get loss of appetite and uh, vomiting in some cases. Liver graft versus host disease is less common, but when it occurs, it can be very serious. And usually it's seen on the blood test first. That's noted in the clinic or on the, the ward round by the docs. But sometimes patients will notice when it's severe that their eyes become yellow. They begin to pass dark urine. Uh, and again, if it's untreated, that could lead to very serious complications and, and liver failure. And is there a reason why it's happening in these kind of three sites you've mentioned uh, as great. opposed to... Yeah. Uh, why is you it can not get it anywhere, the... can't you? But yeah. in particular, we always focus on those three. So why is it? That... Yeah, so it's, it's a really great question. 
So what I've described so far is the acute, acute. form of the so disease. So pre-100 days. Yeah. And Do I, we I, still I'll, use that? No, we don't. No. And I'll come on to, so when we get later into the conversation, I'll explain yeah. why that doesn't really work okay. anymore. And that's what we were all taught. The, the reason it's thought is that these are the skin, the gut, and the liver, partly by virtue of its circulation, are what we call barrier surfaces. So they're points of exposure of the patient to the outside world, and in particular to bugs, bacteria, fungi, which are important, we now believe, in activating the immune system. So these sites, normally, you know, when you're well, and you haven't had a transplant, your skin and your gut uh, are trying to deal with a, a whole slew of microbes that they're, that they're exposed to. Yeah. And they've developed systems that prevent you from reacting all the time to those bugs. You know, so you're all these commensal bugs that we have on our skin and our mm -hmm. gut, you don't react to them. But what happens in graft-versus-host disease, partly as a consequence of the conditioning we've given, you know, the chemotherapy and radiotherapy, and partly because of the immune activation of the donor system these normal balances are broken, and these are the sites, if you like, of a massive reaction. Now, other sites, let's say the kidney or the brain, are what we call sterile sites. And so the body is not normally the sort of, this sort of tentative, balanced approach where it doesn't react. There isn't such a need for that. But within the barrier surfaces, the immune system is designed to just be held in check normally, so it can respond to bad bugs, but not respond to good bugs. And that, that very careful, what we call homeostasis, is disrupted in graphosasis. And that's why you get this really floral response in the, the barrier organs. Chronic graphosase disease, which we'll come on to, I think, um, is a very different disease. And probably the reasons why it occurs are different to acute graphosase disease. We often pile them in together, but why they occur and how they should be treated may well be different, actually. Is it worth us talking, I guess, just at the minute, about what is the treatment for, would we call it acute, or would we just say graft well, right, host I mean, like stage this, one or two? So or? maybe for the sake of this, we'll just try and we'll talk about acute GVHD first. So in terms of acute GVHD, the first thing to remember, and I think this is really important for doctors and nurses looking after these patients, is to remember that graft-versus-host is already resistant to treatment because patients were given treatment to prevent graft-versus-host disease. In particular, we use drugs like cyclosporin or tacrolimus or MMF that suppress the immune system. So when graft-versus-host disease occurs, what it means is the disease is already resistant to treatment. The treatment is partly on the site of involvement and the severity of the, the organ involvement. We grade graft-versus-host disease according to a scoring system which is called the Glinsk criteria. That's the standard one. It has been adapted more recently to make it more user-friendly. So, for example, you, you often be asked what uh, volume of stool has a patient passed on a ward round. Mm -hmm. That's really difficult to judge. Often patients pass urine at the same time, and so it's very difficult to judge the volume. So more recent versions of the scoring system allow for you to have data that's more useful, like the number of times you open your bowels in a day. But essentially, when patients have very, very mild GVHD, for example, if they just have a little bit of a rash, let's say, around the, the nape of their neck and their face and their arms and chest. But isn't it, is it the palms and yeah, the hands so, and the hills? Yeah, cla so forward, classically, very, it, I mean, it does vary. I mean, classically, you're taught that it's on the palms of yeah. your uh, soles and your feet and then around the nape of the neck and then face and then trunk, arms and legs. The pattern of graphosociosis doesn't always really follow that pattern. Yeah. So although we look at the palms, it's actually, it, most of my patients will not have red palms. Yeah, that's true. 
But essentially, you've got patients with very mild disease. They can be treated with just with topical steroids. However, when patients have got greater skin involvement or they begin to get gut or liver involvement, then the grade score is higher. And generally, when you get to grade two to four disease, you could start needing treatment either with oral steroids or more usually intravenous steroids. And the standard treatment we give is methylprednisolone. And one important thing to say about this is that, you know, we give steroids to patients and not all patients respond. There's about a 30% of patients who don't respond. And this is the very high risk group. So the, the patients who don't respond need to go on to second line treatments. And when we get to second line treatments, we don't have good treatments currently mm-hmm. um, that have been licensed. There are new drugs coming in the pipeline, but there's that minority, that third of patients who really worry us, who don't respond very well. And not responding means they don't respond at all or get worse. But it, not responding also can mean a patient who shows a response, but only can show a response when they require very high levels of steroids, which is just as risky because of infections or the side yeah. effects of steroids. So in terms of the treatment then, it's more of a, during conditioning, is that when you start to kind of prevent it? Yeah, so there are a lot, I mean, that's one of my areas of interest in terms of how to prevent graft yeah. versus disease. And individual transplant centres differ. So in the UK and the rest of Europe, we tend to use more T-cell depletion. So essentially you're using various strategies to remove T-cells from the graft because we know the T-cells cause graft versus these. And if you remove the graft, they're less likely to cause GVHD. Whereas in America, they're much less likely to use T-cell depletion, although that's changing. We also use drugs, the most important of which are the two drugs, cyclosporin, which is mostly used at our hospital, but a very similar drug called tacrolimus is used at other hospitals. And these are drugs that essentially stop a T-cell from undergoing full activation and stops it releasing a chemical called interleukin-2, which is really important for those cells beginning to divide. And that's really our, the mainstay of our what we call our preventative treatments. It is confusing when you go onto the ward and you see all these different types of strategies. So mm. I can just begin to, I can sort of map those out for you. Yeah. A very standard strategy that that, uh, used to be used was a combination of cyclosporin and methotrexate. Methotrexate, we used to be given at a low dose on doses 1, 3, 6 and 11 after transplant. You'll remember that. The combination of cyclosporin and methotrexate are only used generally under conditions when you haven't used any other strategy to prevent GVHD. More common in our practice is where we've used T-cell depletion. We would tend to use only cyclosporin alone, um, or cyclosporin in combination with another drug called MMF, uh, mycophenolate. Mycophenolate is a drug which is very selective for the lymphocytes in the immune system, and again, it stops those cells dividing. And so probably for the majority of patients that you see in in our practice, they will have some form of T-cell depletion, and they will have a combination of cyclosporin or cyclosporin and and MMF, and that's probably, I would say, about 80% of our patients currently. So the U.S. school of thought would be we want less disease relapse and less issues with opportunistic infections, and that's the balance to yeah, GVH? Yeah, it's, it's very that... difficult. I mean, obviously, it's very difficult because if you keep T-cells in the graft, on the one hand, there is a potential benefit in terms of reduced risk of relapse because of T-cells in the graft are important for the so-called graft versus tumor effect, yeah. which is essentially where the, the graft T-cells reject the leukemia or the lymphoma. But if patients get a higher instance graft versus host disease, then they need treatment for that, which involves immunosuppressive drugs. 
so they get more infections, or they die directly from GVHD. This is a very controversial field. I'm quite sort of sanguine about it. I, essentially, I think if you look at outcomes of patients and look at overall survival, they're very similar in America versus the UK. Probably in the UK, we accept a higher risk of relapse for some disorders, and that's partly balanced out by less GVHD and a better quality of life for the surviving patients. In America, they probably see less relapse in certain settings, but that's at the expense of more GVHD and possibly in some patients a lower quality of life. But probably overall it evens itself out. And why there's a controversy is because there are not enough randomised controlled studies. Mm. And what we're trying to do in the UK at the moment is to develop randomised studies to look at different methods of GVHD prevention in order to begin to start to try and address these questions rather than having a, an opinion about something, yeah. actually have some data and some information. So you spoke about different combinations of immunosuppression before you go into the day zero, let's yeah, say. Yeah. Um, so obviously you have an indication of who would be more at risk of it than not, and what would that look like? Is that HLA matching that you would know? Yeah, or is yeah that... so the, the, the main risk factors for graft disease, the most important one is the degree of HLA matching. The greater the degree of mismatch between the donor recipient, the higher the risk of graft versus disease. The second is unrelated donors are higher risk than sibling donors or related donors. Cord blood, although when we use it, it often has a significant degree of HLA mismatch. Actually, in fact, if you compare similarly mismatched cord blood versus unrelated donor stem cells, adult stem cells, the risk of graft versus is a little bit lower than you'd expect for cord blood. The age of the donor recipients are important. CMV reactivation is associated with graft versus host disease. And female into male donors is also high risk. Right. So if, if we, we're always trying to choose male donors for male patients, where, where we can, for male donors is our ideal donor because female donors are associated with a high risk of graft versus disease because of pregnancy. And right. Could you have a, a well-matched HLA unrelated donor but then have like a less better outcome in terms of GVH than if it was a sibling of a similar HLA yeah, so, I profile? Mean, so at the moment, our current strategy at the moment is in terms of selection of donors, we would choose uh, an HLA identical sibling as our first choice donor. Our second choice would be a fully matching, unrelated adult donor. And then our third choice currently would be a haploidentical donor. And the haploidentical donor is, if you like, a 50% match. And you know, if you'd asked me if we were doing this podcast seven or eight years ago, I said there's no way we would put that haploidentical donor as the a type of donor we can use. But as you know, we're doing more and more of these transplants. And one of the reasons is because of advances in methods of GVHD prevention. So I've talked about what the majority of our patients are receiving in terms of T-cell depletion and cyclosporine and MMF. But there is a group of patients now who have a, a mother or father or a brother or sister or a daughter or son who are 50% matched. It's what we call haploidentical. And we're using a strategy called post-transplant cyclophosphamide to prevent graft versus host disease. Oh, yeah, we've seen that. Yeah. Well, we've given that. Yeah, <laughs> we've given that. Yeah. And, so th and this has actually changed transplant practice. Quite far post-day zero, though. Let me just take you through what would happen if I, let's say... Uh, I don't know, have you got a brother or a sister? Have you got a two sisters. Two sisters. Yeah. Let's say we were to do a transplant from your sister. Mm -hmm. 
Gavin, and your sister is 50% match. And we did, we gave you conditioning and then we infused her graft into you and just gave you cyclosporin um, as GVHD prophylaxis. What would happen is that within three to four days, you would become very, very unwell with high fevers as the T cells that are infused with your sister's graft begin to react to what are massive differences between you and, the, and, and her. And eventually you would get what we call hyperacute graft versus host disease, where you, which would be overwhelming and not survivable. But what we're doing instead now is we're transferring that graft and allowing that reaction to begin, but then giving a drug called cyclophosphamide on days three and four, really at the point those T cells have begun to divide maximally and shutting down their response. And the cyclophosphamide is very good at depleting the T cells that have divided the T cells that are reacting or stopping them working and then leaving the T cells that didn't react. And those are the T cells that might be useful for you fighting infections in the future like CMV. And the, the consequence is that when we give the cyclophosphamide by day five or six, the patient's usually back to feeling well and the risk of graft-first host disease, particularly chronic graft-first host disease, is very low. In fact, it's only about 15%, which is much lower than some of the other so it has transformed what we're doing and to the extent that we're going to be running a new trial which, for which I'm the chief investigator in the UK next year where we're actually going to start using the same strategy for unrelated donor patients. So we would compare a standard T-cell depleted group which is our control and then two different ways of giving the, the post-transplant cyclophosphamide on day three and four. And the idea is that patients will recover quickly, more quickly from their transplant, particularly their immune systems. The concept is that patients won't get high risk of GVHD, but they won't have had T-cell depletion, therefore their immune systems will recover quicker and they'll be able to fight CMV infection and other viruses and other infections so the idea being quickly. So the cyclophosphamide kills like the allo-reactive T-cells. Exactly. And you've exactly. got the T-cells that are looking for infection and they're sitting kind of they're quiescent. Sitting quiescent exactly. But you still get the graft versus leukemia, graft versus well, lymphoma? Um, if you think about it, that initial reaction is quite a powerful reaction. So that may be sufficient to eradicate any residual tumour. And it's possible also that the, as the new immune system develops, it develops because it's healthy, it has a new capability to reject any residual leukemia lymphoma. It is, again, it's, a, it's a something that we need to do trials to really confirm because clearly there is an increased risk of relapse if you're removing the allo-reactive T-cells. But if you look at all the studies that have been published so far, surprisingly, there doesn't appear to be a high risk of relapse. So it may be there's something about that initial reaction that has an effect and also the fact that this, the immune system in general is healthier much more quickly than, than other a treatment approach is that protect you from relapse. So it doesn't appear to be a risk at the moment. We spoke about the grading, but I think just from like my experience in the last kind of 10, 11 years, I see a lot less grade. I mean, I, I, I remember seeing grade threes and, you know, it wasn't nice to nurse. You know, it's very difficult for the patients and the staff, really, particularly. Yeah. But I don't see it that often. Is that because of... So we use a drug called alimtuzumab. Yeah. which is also called Campath. It can sometimes be given in the bag with the graft, um, or more commonly we give it for a couple of days, or one or two days before the graft is infused. And what it essentially does is, this is a monoclonal antibody humanized, 
antibody which reacts to an antigen called CD52, which is, which is expressed on most leukocytes and is very good at removing from the graft T cells, B cells, NK cells, other cells to infuse with the graft, and is very good at preventing graft-based host disease, and it's also very good at preventing chronic graft-based host disease. And that's the main reason that you're not seeing as much graft-based host disease. Now, at other centres, a minority of centres in the UK and other places in the, elsewhere, they're not using as much T cell depletion, and so they're seeing more graft-based host disease. But that change in practice has emerged over the last 10 to 15 years in the UK, and that's probably why, particularly when I was training and saw dreadful GVHD mm -hmm. when I was yeah. a, a young registrar, it's probably the main reason we're not seeing this to the same extent. Having said that, using alimtuzumab has disadvantages, and the main disadvantage is the patients have to come back in because they have multiple infections, particularly CMV. So patients have to have prolonged treatment with gancyclovir, foscarnet, often prolonged admissions in ambulatory care or in, on the board. And some patients have recurrent reactivations which can cause problems. Patients are at risk of respiratory viral infections. We probably, if you come to our clinics, uh, you'll see a, an extraordinary rate of patients with RSV, parainfluenza, uh, and other infections that, that ordinarily wouldn't cause problems. So, uh, and, then, and then there's a concern that the very extent of the depletion of the graph and T cells can potentially increase the risk of relapse. To the extent that sometimes when we use alum, the one way round it, that we've tried to develop, and it's very much something we've tried to develop in our center here, is we remove T cells with alumtuzumab, but say, well, actually the patient does need to have T cells. So we often have a strategy of adding back T cells. So what we call a donor lymphocyte infusion, where you go back to the donor and you pick out sort of non-selected cells or specific selected cells that try to improve immune reconstitution. You'd often do this around day 28 or beyond and something called add-back. So these could be, for example, cells that would be just peripheral blood mononuclear cells collected on the apheresis and not manipulated in any other way. But we've done a lot of trials here in, in, at UCL looking at about adding subsets of cells. So for example, we've just completed a trial called Pro-T4 where we just add back one subset of T cells that we call CD4 cells, which we don't think causes much GVHD. That trial's just completed. We're just about to open a new trial where we select out what we call memory T cells, which are quite good at, we predict are good at fighting infection, but less likely to cause GVHD. In the past, we've given T cells that have been manipulated in the laboratory so that all the alloreactive T cells are removed. This was something called the ICAT study, which is near completion. And in addition, it's possible to sort cells that are specific for CMV or adenovirus mm. uh, and other cells and add those back. The approach we've tried to develop at UCL is, is to T-cell deplete the transplant so the patients don't get graft versus but then come back in later with titrated doses of very specific T-cells to allow immune constitution to occur without GVHD. I should say those are all early phase clinical trials. So whether that's the right strategy or not, we don't know until those trials are completed and reported. It's possible that the strategy that we're using will change with something very simple like post-transplant cyclophosphamide. It may well be that you get the benefits of GVHD reduction without adversely affecting immune reconstitution. So something very simple and cheap like post-transplant cyclophosphamide might put us all out of business in terms of uh, you know, those sort of strategies. 
And CAMPATH, the effects on a patient's T cells can carry on for a long time. Yeah, but is it, that because the CAMPATH has destroyed the T cells and you've just got a prolonged period where they've not redeveloped? Or if you put T cells back 28 days later, are they going to yeah, I mean, get damaged really, by really the CAMPATH? It's, it's an antibody with a very long half-life. So if you look at day 28, you'll still find CAMPATH in the circulation. Usually it's around the day 28 time point and beyond the levels will begin to drop quite quickly so that you can infuse T-cells without being affected by the CAMPATH. But in terms of its effects, probably by giving CAMPATH, they've removed the majority of T-cells from the patient and, and the donor at the time of the transplant. And then you rely for the recovery of new T-cells. They're not going to come from the graft. They're predominantly, they're either going to come from two sources. They could come from the remaining cells from the graft, a very small number, that just begin to divide. And that definitely happens. But they may, the quality of those T-cells may not be very good because there are not very many of them. So the problem is that their diversity is not large. And you need a diverse set of T-cells to be able to react to lots of different bugs. So what may happen is that the, the repertoire of T-cells you get are quite narrow and they might miss certain bugs that can cause infections. The other thing you rely on a much slower is the generation of new T cells. So that is when you perform a bone marrow transplant, you've got new stem cells, and those stem cells generate T cell precursor cells, and those T cell precursor cells go to an organ called the thymus, which is in the front of the chest, and then develop into new T cells. That process is very prolonged. It works really well in children and young and young people. It doesn't work so well in people who are in their 50s and 60s, so our thymuses don't work as well. One of the things I'm, I'm aware of is that we've got a group of patients who don't have graft-first host disease but come in, in and out of hospital because of important immune constitution. In my research, one of the things I'm interested in is this concept that graft-first host disease doesn't just affect the obvious targets like the skin and the gut and liver, things you can see or look on a blood test, but also has these what I call hidden targets. And graft-first host disease affects the structures of really important lymphoid organs like the bone marrow, the lymph nodes, and the thymus, which means that T-cells and B-cells don't develop normally, and they're fewer in number, and they don't react normally. So a lot of the problems we see later on are patients who don't have GVHD and not on a lot of immune suppression, but actually because their immune systems don't work. What I think that reflects is early on GVHD development that there was hidden damage to their immune systems, their ability to generate new healthy immune cells, which they never really recover from, and that's why they keep coming in and out of hospital. How do we diagnose the GVHD? You say you can see it on a blood test, you maybe send a stool sample for the, yeah, the so gut. Or yeah, is the... so skin is really obvious. Yeah. I mean, and. I would never need to do a biopsy to diagnose right. skin GVHD because it's just a classic sort of pattern that you see. Gut graft versus is more complex. Okay, so the strategy I would involve for patients with lower gut GVHD is wherever possible I do a biopsy. The way I would organise myself is I would first of all check for Clostridium difficile, send off stool for virology gastrointestinal PCR and then I'd also send a standard sort of microbiology to make sure you exclude an infection. I will also at the same time arrange for the patient to have a, a lower GI endoscopy and biopsy usually because that takes two days or so to organize and only when I've got a biopsy will I make a decision to give treatment. 
occasionally you have to make that decision at the weekend and you can't do that. The drawback of the biopsy results is sometimes you miss sites of active information. So you, again, you might have to make a hybrid, for example, a patient who has absent microbiology and virology, no clostridium difficile, a negative biopsy, but he's got a consistent clinical picture, I would still treat a GVHD. Liver GVHD is less common, often occurs coincidentally with gut GVHD. Often we see it in patients when we're, we're reducing immune suppression. So at the time we're reducing cytosporin, we see a, a change in the liver enzymes. It has different patterns. So we see classic acute pattern where you see a rise in the bilirubin associated with the rise in one of the enzymes called alkaline phosphatase, suggesting an obstructive picture. When you're removing immune suppression later on after transplant, we often see a rise in the ALT and AST, uh, often without a rise in the bilirubin. And when we give, if a patient gets GVHD after DLI, which is given, for example, because a patient's got mixed chimerism or because a patient's got disease relapse, occasionally you see that sort of different pattern of uh, liver GVHD with a rise in ALT, AST. Now, liver biopsy, I would only do if the clinical pattern is not clear and there may be an alternative diagnosis.